Welcome back to The Med Thread, your monthly dose of drug history, pharmacy practice, and medication therapy. Today, we have Roberto joining us, a recent graduate from the University of Manitoba and one of our pharmacy residents this year. Welcome, Roberto. Thanks so much for having me. Have any of you listeners seen a case of serotonin syndrome in your clinics or pharmacies? Have you ever seen a case where you thought it was a possibility? And have you counseled on what to watch out for or how to handle it if it happens? Fortunately, I haven't had a patient with serotonin syndrome, but I'd like to be ready if I do. So today we'll talk about what it is, how it's managed, and we'll explore some cases we found in the literature. We wanted to trace our understanding of serotonin syndrome back to its origins of the term, and perhaps the first report of it happening in the literature. We've found out some interesting things. It turns out we knew about the manifestations or symptoms of serotonin syndrome quite a bit before it was even called that, and really before the discovery of serotonin itself. Right. Serotonin was discovered in the 1930s by Vittorio Erspimer, who called it enteramine because it was found in the intestinal tract, entero referring to the gut, and amine because of its chemical constituent. In the 1940s, it was found in blood and rediscovered, so to speak, as the full chemical structure was identified as 5-hydroxytryptamine and named serotonin by scientists Irvine Page, Arda Green, and Maurice Rapport. In the early 1950s, it was shown to be the same as enteramine, but the name serotonin stuck. But back to serotonin syndrome. Decades before the discovery of serotonin, carcinoid tumors were described. These gastrointestinal tumors secreted neurotransmitters, of which serotonin is a primary one. This meant that patients would experience some of the symptoms that we'll talk about today. I found a case report in 1959 in the New England Journal of Medicine that called it an unusual neurologic syndrome associated with hyperserotonemia. This was also talked about in 1962 as a dumping syndrome, and another group called it a unique syndrome, related to serotonin from carcinoid tumors. There was one paper in 1962 with serotonin syndrome in the title, but it took a while to catch on. It wasn't until the 1970s the term was used more often, essentially following the introduction of a m- number of medications that were able to increase serotonin levels in the body. Serotonin syndrome, or the broader serotonin toxicity, is the result of too much serotonin in the nervous system. It can occur as a direct result of the appropriate use of medication, interactions with different medications, both illicit and prescribed, or intentional overdose. The symptoms of serotonin toxicity can present in a variety of severities, ranging from so mild that patients may not even realize they're experiencing it, to actually being life-threatening. The typical three categories of signs and symptoms associated with serotonin syndrome are mental status changes, autonomic hyperactivity, and neuromuscular abnormalities. Mental status changes are typically excitable in nature and can present as anxiety, agitation, delirium, an inability to sit still, disorientation, and confusion. An autonomic hyperactivity refers to excess arousal in the autonomic nervous system, causing the nerves that send signals to vital organs like the heart and digestive organs to send too many stimulating signals at once. This tends to take the form of sweating, increased heart rate, hyperthermia, increased blood pressure, vomiting, and diarrhea. And last but not least, the third category, neuromuscular hyperactivity, refers to overstimulation of the nerves that send messages to the muscles, 
which causes tremors, rigid muscles, twitching, and spastic movements. Twitching and spastic movements are usually the most commonly observed, while muscle rigidity can usually be seen in the lower extremities. What's fascinating is that serotonin syndrome can occur in all age groups, even newborns. It is being seen more frequently, and some believe this is because serotonergic medications are being used more commonly across various medical practices. Serotonergic refers to a drug that acts by increasing the amount of serotonin present in the central nervous system, particularly the brain. One of the first documented cases in the literature with respect to medications dates back to the 1960s in comparative studies investigating single and combined antidepressant therapies. And data from the American Toxic Exposure Surveillance System, which is kind of like our Canadian poison centers, the ones where if someone accidentally drinks a bottle of cleaning solution, you'd give them a call. They indicate that there have been tens of thousands of toxic exposures to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs for short. And many of those exposures have involved some form of serotonin syndrome. In 2005, there were over 48,000 total toxic exposures to SSRIs, with 18% of those having moderate to major effects and a few resulting in death. Checking our adverse drug reaction database in Canada today, they list 568 serotonin syndrome events since 1965, potentially due to medications. But it's thought that the actual number of cases that occur may be much higher than the reported number because mild cases may be missed or cases may be misdiagnosed or unreported. You may think that such a serious condition should be easy to diagnose, but that's where you'd be mistaken. It can actually be quite difficult because it's diagnosed through observation of the patient's signs and symptoms, as well as what patients report themselves. Something like rhabdomyolysis, for example, can be diagnosed through investigation of serum creatine kinase to determine if it's truly rhabdomyolysis after discussion of a patient's symptoms. There's no reasonable way to assess the level of serotonin present in someone's central nervous system, and testing for serotonin levels in blood has not been shown to be beneficial. So all laboratory tests ordered when someone presents for presumed serotonin syndrome are used to rule out other conditions and assess or monitor for severity. But we do have some tools to make things easier. The Hunter criteria for serotonin syndrome are typically the go-to tool for diagnosis. Essentially, the criteria are met if a patient has taken a serotonergic drug and is experiencing one or more of the following. Spontaneous clonus or spastic movements, inducible clonus, and an agitation or sweating. An inducible clonus refers to fast, repeated muscle contractions that occur when the tendon is stretched. Ocular clonus, an agitation or sweating, tremor and twitching, hypertonia, which means increased muscle tone, and a temperature above 38 degrees Celsius, with ocular clonus or inducible clonus. Other possible findings on examination include hyperthermia, acesthesia, which is a kind of restlessness, deep tendon hyperreflexia, dilated pupils, dry mucous membranes, increased bowel sounds, and flushed skin. The Hunter criteria seem to be the best set of diagnostic criteria, with a sensitivity of 84% and a specificity of 97%. This means that if serotonin syndrome is present, the tool will identify it 84% of the time. And if serotonin syndrome is actually not present, the tool will be right 97% of the time. So that's a pretty good start. Back 
backtracking a bit, I want to emphasize the initial point for using the Hunter criteria. That is, the patient has taken a serotonergic drug. One of the best tools in diagnosing serotonin syndrome due to medications is the patient's history. Determining which drugs the patient has taken recently helps determine whether the symptoms the patient is experiencing are transient or something more serious. We'll provide a couple links to these lists of drugs on our webpage, but some examples associated with serotonin toxicity include drugs in the SSRI and SNRI class of antidepressants, MAO inhibitors, trazodone, tricyclic antidepressants, levodopa, cocaine, MDMA or ecstasy, fentanyl, and metoclopramide. An important drug to keep in mind, especially for community pharmacists, is the natural health product St. John's Wort, and also dextromotorfan, which is often found in cough syrups. Whenever a patient presents with symptoms that may seem related to serotonin syndrome, it is crucial to investigate any recent medication changes, including over-the-counter products. And it's interesting to me how these drugs cause serotonin toxicity, because sometimes it isn't obvious. So let's imagine a nerve ending that's releasing serotonin as part of its normal communication. The serotonin does its thing on the next cell, and then is brought back into the nerve after some time through these transporters. And within the cell, it's repackaged or degraded. Drugs that lead to serotonin syndrome play around with this process. Some of them are clear, like SSRIs and SNRIs, blocking the transporters involved in reuptake and directly leading to increased serotonin levels in nerve conduction. Ecstasy is interesting because similar to SSRIs, it prevents reuptake, but it also causes these transporters to reverse and spew out serotonin. And over-the-counter medications like dextromethorphan or DM can also do this, but generally you might need to take a lot of it, in which case you'll run into other problems unrelated to serotonin. Some opioids, like meperidine or tramadol, will also block serotonin reuptake, but others, like morphine, do not. Now drugs such as levodopa, which work on dopamine, are interesting because some case studies have observed that they may still have a role in causing serotonin syndrome. It is thought that in the central nervous system, there are some regions which share serotonin and dopamine receptors. When dopaminergic receptors are activated, there is some serotonergic activation on those neurons as well. Additionally, levodopa is formed into dopamine in serotonergic neurons, which moves serotonin out of the neuron and into the synaptic cleft. This can be enough to cause an imbalance of serotonin activity and trigger serotonin syndrome. MAOIs, such as phenylzine, do so by blocking monoamine oxidase, an enzyme involved in the breakdown of serotonin in the neuron. The MAOA subtype is specifically responsible meaning their inhibition is more dangerous and more likely to result in serotonin toxicity. MAOB inhibitors, on the other hand, like the ones used in Parkinson's, are less likely to affect serotonin, but if used in combination with other serotonergic drugs, should still be monitored. I've been seeing a lot of patients with Parkinson's recently, and I've been reminded of this. Cocaine is pretty interesting because it's known to affect the dopamine neurotransmitter system, but can also prevent the reuptake of serotonin into the presynaptic neurons. Although cocaine does show a greater effect on the dopaminergic system, it binds to serotonin and will increase the amount of serotonin present by blocking its reuptake. In combination with other serotonergic drugs, this could precipitate an episode of serotonin syndrome. All of this becomes part of the problem with figuring out whether medication is causing serotonin toxicity. 
not to mention the combinations with other medications that can change these drug levels due to interactions affecting drug metabolism. There are so many medications that have effects on serotonin, and trying to figure out what doses, duration of use, combinations, and above all, the patient-specific risks that lead to toxicity can cause some headaches among practitioners. And speaking about headaches, at least we're pretty sure that migraine medications that act on the serotonin system, such as the triptans, don't lead to serotonin syndrome. Before we get into treatment and the cases, just a few more things to clarify. Serotonin syndrome can be mistaken for other conditions, but it is most commonly mistaken for neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or NMS for short. They can be set apart by examining the patient's history, some specific examinations, and the clinical course of the condition. NMS will usually develop over the course of days or weeks after exposure to some medications like antipsychotics, while serotonin syndrome usually presents over a course of 24 hours. Serotonin syndrome causes the neuromuscular hyperactivity with associated signs like tremor, while NMS presents with sluggish neuromuscular responses like muscle rigidity or slow reflexes. NMS takes about 9 days to resolve, while serotonin syndrome will usually resolve within less than 24 hours. A number of management guides exist, but treatment of serotonin syndrome usually takes the form of supportive care and elimination of serotonergic exposure during the episode. The first step is to attempt to normalize any abnormal vital signs, such as giving intravenous fluids to remedy volume depletion from sweating and diarrhea. Sometimes, medications are used, such as benzodiazepines, to manage episodes of agitation or delirium, and may also help to relax the patient. Finally, if the case of serotonin syndrome is very difficult to manage, cyproheptadine can be administered. It acts as a histamine-1 receptor antagonist with nonspecific serotonin antagonist properties. It can cause sedation, which may also be beneficial if the patient is experiencing episodes of delirium or psychosis. It's currently the only antidote for serotonin syndrome. And once symptoms of serotonin syndrome have resolved, it's important to discuss if and when which serotonergic medications should be restarted to minimize future risks of serotonin syndrome. Our first case was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry Residence Journal in 2017, and in this case, the physician describes Mrs. A, a 60-year-old female with a complex medical history including hypertension, bipolar 1, borderline personality disorder, and substance abuse, to name a few. She was admitted after attempted suicide, and it was noted that she had a number of psychiatric medications she had used in the past, such as lithium, divalproex, vortioxetine, phenylazine, and risperidone. In the hospital, a few medication changes were made, but importantly, her antipsychotic was switched to haloperidol, and doses were gradually increased. Phenylazine was also increased from 75 mg to 90 mg a day. Three months later, she was disoriented and having difficulty with extension of her extremities. The initial concern was neuroleptic malignant syndrome because of the relatively recent start of haloperidol, and that dose was decreased. After more investigation, in particular what happened overnight, her condition aligned with serotonin syndrome. Overnight, she quickly developed a number of the Hunter criteria signs, such as ocular clonus, sweating and tremors, hyperreflexia, and increases in blood pressure and body temperature. 
all her psychotropic medications were stopped, and she was managed with supportive care in lorazepam, but also needed ciproheptidine. Of particular importance for us today is that she was taking phenylzine, an irreversible MAO inhibitor that, while it worked for her in the past, is associated with serious cases of serotonin syndrome. Since the inhibition is irreversible, it can take some patients weeks to produce enough of that enzyme to return to normal enzyme activity. Our next case was found in the American College of Chest Physicians Journal in 2016, where a 42-year-old male was admitted because of shortness of breath and eventually needed a tracheostomy. In the ICU, he needed heavy sedation to help manage his airway, but he was also morbidly obese and had a tolerance to opiates, so fentanyl, among other drugs, was started. By the time his fentanyl dose had gone up to 300 micrograms per kilogram per hour, he had signs of serotonin syndrome, as per Hunter's criteria. This was treated, and serotonergic drugs, including paroxetine, were also discontinued. And in this case, they also ruled out sepsis as an explanation. And here's an example of fentanyl triggering serotonin syndrome. But as is typical, because it was used in combination with another serotonergic drug, the SSRI paroxetine. The dose of fentanyl could also be a factor here, reminding us that we have to think about how much of the different drugs patients are getting. The next case from the Journal of Medical Cases in 2016 reports a 74-year-old female presenting to the ER with altered mental status. She had a high respiratory rate, heart rate, blood pressure, and a fever. She had taken escitalopram as usual, but that day, a friend had given her tramadol for a headache. She also ended up in the ICU and had hallucinations and delusions. While she was diagnosed with serotonin syndrome and treated until her vitals normalized, sadly, she developed rhabdomyolysis because of this incident. It's frightening that even a single dose of medication could trigger this. And although we don't know how much tramadol she had, it is a reminder that combining serotonergic medications needs to be done carefully, or in some cases, avoided completely. Our last case is rather interesting. It was published in the Oxner Journal in 2016, involving a 17-year-old male with depression who went to the emergency department with poor muscle coordination, slurred speech, and jerking movements. But it's his past medical history that shows a few important points about serotonin syndrome. He was diagnosed for depression only about a month from his admission, and at the time started on 10 milligrams a day of fluoxetine. Three weeks later, he had suicidal ideation, and at another hospital, his dose was increased to 20 milligrams per day following another increase to 30 milligrams per day, nine days before his visit to the ER. A few days at the 30 milligram dose, he already had weakness, dizziness, nausea, and was prescribed on Dancitron as needed for his nausea. But he worsened, and his mother brought him to the ER, identifying a number of serotonin syndrome signs, like his eyes rolling around in his head and jerking movements. After stopping both of those medications, and with treatment, he got better. The neurologist thought that he might have had altered metabolism of the drugs that led to such pronounced effects. So this case highlights how sometimes serotonin syndrome can pop up, even with the appropriate use of medications. It also raises questions about ondansetron, which has a warning in product labeling that it has been associated with serotonin syndrome, and is therefore found in some published lists of drugs that can do so. These warnings are also on other drugs that really have not established a causal or pharmacological link to serotonin syndrome. And this reminds me of our talk about QT prolongation, because similarly, warnings about serotonin syndrome pop up on computer screens, 
leading to a constant flood of alerts that offer little to help us discuss and make decisions about possible risk to the patient in front of us. Pharmacists are in an excellent position to select therapies that will minimize the chance of serotonin syndrome occurring, to educate patients on serotonin syndrome, and to help identify any cases of serotonin syndrome that may occur. Preventing serotonin syndrome comes down to the selection of medications that a patient will find themselves using in combination. For example, non-selective NAO inhibitors, linezolid and methylene blue can cause serious serotonin syndrome when paired with any serotonergic drug. Other combinations require monitoring and a cautious approach. For example, tramadol paired with an SSRI like paroxetine or fluoxetine especially, or SNRIs can be dangerous as they have increased serotonergic effects. And likewise, with opioids like fentanyl, methadone, or meperidine. Dextromotorphin, amipramine, and clomipramine are other drugs associated with serotonin syndrome. If unavoidable, recommend that the doses be titrated slowly and carefully while watching for symptoms, especially within hours to three days of increasing a dose or adding new serotonergic medications. In situations where the patient is receiving a tryptan, mirtazapine, or a 5-HT3-NT emetic like ondansetron, there is little reason to be worried as these act at different receptors than those closely related to serotonin syndrome. But additional steps to prevent serotonin syndrome include using the lowest effective dose, asking about illicit drug use, ensuring that the proper tapering and washout periods are being used, and reassessing the need for any serotonergic drug every year. The other important piece is patient education. We should identify whether or not they are taking any other serotonergic medications, including over-the-counter ones, and discuss the signs and symptoms of not just serotonin syndrome, but serotonin toxicity in general. It would be helpful for patients to recognize when mild toxicity happens, such as experiencing a single symptom of insomnia or diarrhea, and bringing it to your attention. But if serious symptoms or a combination of multiple symptoms starts to crop up, they need to go to the ER. We have diagnostic tools, like Hunter's criteria, to figure out if serotonin syndrome is actually happening, and we have some management strategies if it does. But really, we should strive to prevent it from getting to that point in the first place. So while current numbers estimate that serotonin syndrome is not all that common, it might increase as the number of psychiatric medications go up. Additionally, many cases go unreported because they're mild in nature and patients may not realize what they're experiencing is actually serotonin toxicity. Those that do experience severe cases may be misdiagnosed as having another condition, as serotonin syndrome can mimic so many different things. And that's right. We need to be mindful of these signs and symptoms and careful when recommending or prescribing these medications. Thank you so much for joining us, Roberto. What a fascinating topic you chose. Thank you for inviting me today. Thanks. And thanks for listening to this episode of The MedThread. Send us suggestions and comments at medthread at mon.ca. We'd be happy to hear from you. Next month, we'll be chatting about methadone and suboxone in opioid agonist maintenance treatments. See you later.